Hey, teacher friend, welcome to another episode of the Simply Teach podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Jackson, and each week I bring on a teacher friend to talk about simple ways to engage our students, stay motivated, and keep up with best practices. I'm so glad that you're here. Real quick, before we get started, I want to make sure you know about these two things. The Simply Organized Teacher Community Facebook group. This is a group for us to interact together, support, and collaborate with each other, and I would love for you to join us there. Just search the Simply Organized Teacher on Facebook and make sure to click the group. We are currently in the middle of a month-long series on small group teaching, and each week my email subscribers get an email with tips, resources, and support all around that topic. So make sure you subscribe so you can be a part of that. So guys, this week's episode is a bonus episode because... I got to interview Dr. Kagan, and I didn't really feel like waiting another two weeks to release our conversation. But before we get into our conversation, I want to tell you that I'm doing a giveaway over on my Instagram. I'll post about it there, so make sure you like the Simply Organized Teacher on Instagram so that you can find out about it. Okay, so here's the background story. I've been signed up to go to this Kagan brain-friendly training for like, I don't know, three or four months. And about two weeks ago, the week before Dr. Kagan was due to arrive for the conference, I got really gutsy. I reached out to Kagan Professional Development on Instagram and asked how likely it would be that Dr. Kagan would interview with me. I got a message back that same night saying they would inquire about it, and within a week, I was communicating with the powers that be for my conversation with Dr. Kagan. Dr. Kagan is a brilliant man who is the founder and co-director of Kagan Cooperative Learning. I'm not going to try and explain cooperative learning to you because he does an amazing job telling you why you need it in your classroom. But here's what I do know about Dr. Kagan. He's really smart and a hardworking man, but he's oh so generous. This past week was my third time sitting under his teaching, and each time I'm encouraged and motivated to be the best teacher that I can be. He's so compassionate and cares about helping teachers succeed, and I hope that you will feel encouraged and motivated by our conversation. Dr. Kagan, welcome to the Simply Teach podcast. I am so excited to be interviewing you today. Glad to be here. Thank you for taking a few minutes after a long day of sitting down with me. Oh, you're more than welcome. So I have been doing Kagan since day one in my classroom. Um, I was in the master's program that one of your trainers is in, so I've been drenched with it since the beginning of my teaching career. But what would you say... You've been drenched with Kagan. Drenched with it, like... <laughs> Know it, love it, do it. Um, but I feel like I talk to a lot of people that don't know what Kagan is. So what would be your elevator pitch about Kagan Cooperative Learning? Would you rather have one student involved or engaged at any one moment, giving one answer, or in the same amount of time, would you rather have every student in the class give several answers? We have methods that make the difference. There's structures for engagement. That's a good elevator pitch. <laughs> that puts it back on, on the other person. So what is your background in education? I, I don't even know. Were you ever a classroom teacher? or? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I started pitching cooperative learning way back in the early 80s when a quiet class was a good class. Mm -hmm. And I found that the way I could convince administrators and teachers more readily than any other was to do demonstration lessons. So I volunteered to do demonstration lessons at all grades. Um, I, 
just hour lesson. So it's not really being a classroom teacher, but I've been in all kinds of classrooms and done all kinds of cooperative learning lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference, um, admittedly, but I, I consider myself having taught. And then the other side of it is as a university professor for 17 years, I used the, the cooperative learning methods in my own lectures and in my own graduate seminars. Wow. That's, I feel like a lot of teachers that use Kagan are elementary, for, to, to my knowledge. And so to hear you doing it in, in grad school or, you know, college. It's is, a little bit of a myth because we train almost as many secondary teachers each year as we do elementary really? teachers. We train, um, we do a couple thousand workshops. And, of course, there's, you know, 50 or 60 on the average teachers in each and it's just almost even secondary and elementary. Well, that's good. That's encouraging. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know that. How did you get started in, in all the research and all that? Uh, I was in graduate school for clinical psychology and entered in 1968. And as part of our work in clinical psychology, we had to do research. And I chose to study cooperation and competition and develop some methods that eventually were used in many parts of the world to uh, look at whether kids were cooperative or competitive. And what came out of that research was that the situations that people are in are far more important than their personality, their child-rearing, their genes, their culture... None of that. We could override all of that very easily by putting them in cooperative or competitive situations. And so I said, if we could create cooperative situations in the classroom, kids might do better. But it wasn't quite that simple because I had early on predicted that there would be a match or mismatch, that competitive kids and competitive cultures would do better in a competitive classroom, cooperative kids, cooperative cultures do better in a cooperative classroom. And I got permission to randomly assign the student teachers uh, at UC Riverside uh, to teach either using cooperative or traditional methods with the assumption that the cooperative kids would do better with cooperative learning. The competitive kids would do better with competitive learning. And it wasn't true at all. All of the kids did better with cooperative learning. It didn't matter whether we were looking at race relations or class climate or achievement or reduction of the achievement gap or self-esteem or empathy. We collected about a million bits of data. It was a major, major study. And once we got that data in... um, the dean of the School of Education asked me if I wouldn't uh, direct a cooperative learning program for all of our student teachers. So I got involved. Uh, my, my real entry into training teachers was training student teachers in the cooperative learning methods. Very cool. So if a teacher's listening right now and they haven't heard of Kagan cooper- Cooperative Learning or aren't very familiar with it, could you give us two or three structures, or could you define what a structure is and then give us two or three of them that a teacher could listen to right now and then take into their classroom tomorrow and implement? You bet. So a structure is a content-free, 
uh, sequence of interactions of students either with each other and or with a teacher. So the example would be a rally robin, one of our simplest structures. Let's say the teacher wants students to name colors or name prime numbers or inert elements or, or parts of the speech, uh, uh, literary techniques, whatever the content is. It's content-free. The structure can be used with any content. Now, the traditional teacher says, who in the class can tell me one color or inert element, whatever it is, calls on one, responds to that student, then who can tell me another one? So it's a sequential one student at a time. With our structure, Rally Robin, we say turn to your partner and A say one, then B say one. A say one and B say one. Rally like on the ping pong table with tennis court up and back, up and back. Mm-hmm. So in the same <coughs> amount of time that that traditional teacher has called on and responded to three students in the classroom, each giving one answer, in our classroom, every student in the class has given several answers in the same amount of time. And the traditional tends to be calling only on the high achievers because they've got their hands up, so the result is increased achievement gap. We're calling on all students. All students are engaged, and so the result is a decrease in the achievement gap. Uh, In addition, kids like school better because they're active. They learn an embedded curriculum of taking turns in this case, listening to their partner, and so on. In the traditional, they talk only to the teacher, so they don't acquire these social skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it they learn so many social skills through it. And I watch while you're talking. I'm thinking about I teach in a dual language classroom with most of my students are bilingual, and I've had kids come straight from Mexico with no English and being using those structures and being immersed in the language, even if. I mean, they're just hearing and not able to verbalize at that point. They're still, I've watched them grow and get that English language so quickly because they are interacting with other kids. Yeah, if you do the mathematics of it, the traditional way of structuring is a tremendously efficient way of preventing language acquisition. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you want to have every student verbalize for one minute. If you're going to call on them one at a time, the teacher first asks a question, student responds for a minute, but then the teacher responds to the answer. Correction opportunity or praise or a different way of verbalizing it or whatever. So the teacher's talking twice for each time a student talks. And if you had 30 students in a class... And half the time the teacher's talking, the best you can do is one minute a student an hour. Contrast that with, say, a time pair share where A, you talk for a minute, B, you talk for a minute. In two minutes, or a little more because the teacher asked asked the question, but in a little more than two minutes, in terms of fluency acquisition, in terms of verbalizing, we accomplish what that traditional teacher takes an hour to t- accomplish. So it's no mystery why there's such greater language acquisition in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said Rally Robin was the first one you mentioned. Time pair shares are another structure that you would recommend. 
Well, we have well over 200 structures <laughs> that we train teachers in, and the structures have different uh, functions. Uh-huh. So some structures are good for brainstorming, from team building, class building, mastering content, mastering procedures, skill acquisition. So there's different structures for different functions. Uh, to take a social skills structure... Uh, We want students to listen carefully uh, to each other. One of the most requested skills among employers is listening skills. Uh, So take paraphrase passport, where your right to speak in the group or with your partner is to accurately paraphrase them Mm -hmm. before you can go on. So different structures for different functions. If I want... um, uh, the students to brainstorm, I might use something called ThinkPad Brainstorm, where everybody has slips of paper and simultaneously they're all generating ideas. Later they can sort them, they can categorize them, prioritize them, and so on. But that's just for brainstorming. If a teacher's listening and wants a resource to go and find all these things, where could they? The two resources I would mention, one would be our web page. We've got videos and we've got uh, informative stuff as well as tons of resources they can look at. Uh, That would be one source. If they wanted one good book on cooperative learning, I would recommend Kagan Cooperative Learning. That's our basic uh, learning book. We've got um, chapters on social skills, on mastery, on thinking, on class building, on team building, and how to do it in each of those areas. I feel like that's a good introductory book. We had a new new to Kagan person sitting at our table today, and I was like, this is the book you need. You need to get it. Um, Okay, so I had a couple of, um, I put out on my social media that you I was going to get to sit down and talk with you. And so I had a couple questions that I wanted to pose to you um, that they gave me. So what would you say to the teacher dealing with a really shy student or an introverted kid who doesn't want to talk? Because this is, that they, they are required to talk to their partner. What do you say? How do you get them engaged? I can't make anybody talk. I can't make anybody cooperative. What I can do is make it attractive for them. So um, one of the ways of making it attractive is we teach their teammates what to say. Oh, we'd really like to hear your idea on that. Or if they're at a really early stage of language acquisition, they might ask uh, yes-no kind of questions. So we'll teach the teammates how to bring out that student. They can do a lot more for that student than we can. Mm -hmm. We've got a whole class to deal with. They have that one student to deal with. So that's, that's one way. The other thing is to just uh, make it attractive by having manipulatives, having things that they want to talk about. Uh, whenever we teach a structure, we always start with fun content. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if I'm going to do that rally robin, and the first thing I do is say, name inert elements... I'm going to get a lot of resistance. Somebody doesn't know a nerd element, and they'll say, oh, that's dumb. So I don't do that. I start out so they're learning the structure with very simple content. Can you name fun things to do after school? Can you name some of your favorite foods? You name one, you name one. So it's an easy entry. 
kids who would be reluctant otherwise because their fear maybe I wouldn't get it right or wrong see, oh, I can't get it right or wrong, this is really easy, um, and they get pulled in. So something I do in my classroom, and tell me if this is right or wrong, or um, if I have a kid just learning English or isn't very responsive, I'll even allow them to repeat something that their partner or someone in their group has said, so they're at least verbalizing. Yeah, your name. Okay. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, But you want them to have some of their own thoughts Mm -hmm. that they express as well. And if they're at a very early stage of language acquisition, I would teach the teammates how to ask um, closed questions where it's a yes or a no or agree or disagree and give those kids those gamuts. Make sure they know what agree means and disagree means. And then... uh, um, teacher makes a statement and each one in turn says agree or disagree well and then that's the teaching those teammates the social skills that you were talking about sure. of how to work with others um another question i got so this conference that we've been at you've been doing all week is about brain friendly learning um what is your advice for a teacher who like a lot of in our district um, units are constrained by time like you've got five days to teach this or 15 days to teach this um, what's your best advice for someone who is within that time constraint but also wants to make it brain-friendly and engaging for the kids? If they're just starting, I would start with very, very simple structures to insert in the lesson. So our simplest of all the structures is a pair-share. Teacher says, you're with a partner. A, you're going to share one sentence. B, you're going to share one sentence. You'll each put up a hand, and we're done with a pair share. It's different than turn and talk. If you say turn and, turn and talk, the high achiever does all the talking, mm-hmm. and we increase that achievement gap. So we equalize participation with our structures. So turn and, uh, uh, pair share, rally robin, maybe a time pair share. Start with those simple little structures and then build up from there. I'm not sympathetic to trying to cover as much curriculum as you can. I'm sympathetic to getting the kids to Mm -hmm. learn the curriculum. Uh, In the rush to cover curriculum, teachers oftentimes leave the kids out. Mm -hmm. If you want to cover as much curriculum as you possibly can, stand in front of the class and talk fast. (laughs) You'll cover the most curriculum yeah. you can, but the kids won't learn anything. So we, we need to move away from the inch-deep, mile-wide curriculum, choose things that are really important for the students to learn and that we know that those core concepts will serve them well, and then go in more depth with those. Mm-hmm. I think that's what teachers want to do, but I, it's just so hard, you know, these days with the testing and the... Just well, all the pressures. Yeah, that... it, it's a bit of a myth, though, because we have lots of data. We have um, SUNY, the State University of New York, has done independent research studies on the effects of Kagan uh, cooperative learning, effect of our structures. And we get dramatic achievement gains. So when teachers use these structures... Even though it takes time to initially set it up, you win in the balance because the kids are mastering the content at such a higher rate. When um, 
you can talk for one minute and an hour, there's not a lot of learning that goes on. Uh, you, the teacher may have covered a lot of curriculum, but the student hasn't learned it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the long run, even if your goal is just curriculum-oriented, you're better off with the structures. But then we get all these other gains. We get the achievement gap goes down, liking for school goes up, uh, race relations are improved, empathy, self-esteem are improved, class climate is improved, liking for the teacher goes up. There's social skills of all sorts. Uh, Discipline referrals go down. We've got a ton of data. There's been just many, many research studies uh, supporting each one of those conclusions I just mentioned. So the fear of, oh, I've got to cover the curriculum. Well, if your goal is really for the kids to learn the curriculum, you'll be better off with the structures. Okay, so I want to wrap up with three just questions that I ask all my guests that I interview. Um, First one, what is your biggest pet peeve with teaching or the education field? That might be a loaded question. (laughs) I've now presented in 39 countries. In each of those countries, I've gone into the classrooms to look at teaching and learning. And worldwide, the most common way of trying to get student engagement is to say who in the class can tell me and have the high achievers raise their hands. It's so patently bankrupt compared to um, turn to your partner and do a rally rob. Uh, Why call on one when in the same amount of time you can call on everyone? Why have kids give one answer each when in the same amount of time they can all be giving many answers? So that's my biggest complaint with the way things are. And the reason they're that way is that every teacher went into training to become mm-hmm. a teacher when they first entered kindergarten. Mm-hmm. They saw their teacher call on one. Then in first grade, second grade, by the time they became a teacher, it was so highly myelinated, it, w- it was overlearned, and without even thinking, the teachers began calling on one. So we've got these ingrained habits that we need to overcome. Mm-hmm. And the kids have it so ingrained too. They know to. I tell them, put your hand out. I'm not. I'm not calling on anybody with the hand up. Um, what's keeping you sane right now? Well, I have a passion for photography. I um, have my photo web page, and I like working on that. My wife and I love going to Africa. We go to Africa once a year, observe the animals, take pictures. She does the video, and I do the photos. And it's something we both enjoy very much. And another thing that's keeping me sane is we we got a house in the mountains. And we get up there and everything gets quieter, mm-hmm. more focused, more relaxed. People are at a slower pace. And I feel like I'm coming down to basics when I'm there. So that helps me too. I love that you said my dad is a photographer, not a professional photographer but that is his passion and his so I love that you said that because that's that's how my dad is yeah I was trying to explain that to people and uh, a way of saying it is it not only focuses the camera but it focuses me it's mm-hmm. a good way to put it have you been to uh, Namibia in Africa have you been there mm-hmm. my sister studied abroad this summer 
there for mm-hmm. photography, mm-hmm. actually. So, um, okay, my last question is, what is your favorite kid moment? That's a good question. Um, one of my favorite kid moments was uh, told to me by Vern Miner, who is a superintendent of schools who's also a trainer for us. He's a full-time trainer and leads our uh, leading the professional school. He works with administrators. Well, as a superintendent, he had been um, in a district for a number of years, and of course his kids had been in those classrooms, and by then all the, they did cooperative learning all the time. That was the way those classrooms were structured. Well, he was going to move to a new district, and the district he was going to move to, there was no cooperative learning going on. So he thought he'd better prepare his kids for this change. And he told them, um, well, in the, the, in the schools you're going to be moving into, you're going to be sitting in rows. And his daughter said, you mean like when we take tests? When we have to move our chairs apart and we can't help each other? He said, yeah, you're (laughs) going to be sitting all the time in rows. And she thought about that for a minute, and then she said, well, then how are we going to help each other learn? Then that just makes your whole life's work worth it, right? (laughs) She couldn't conceive of sitting not to be able to help each other and... Part of what's rewarding for me about hearing that is not just that, oh, she had gotten used to cooperative learning, but that she had acquired a different social character. Mm -hmm. The way you relate to one another is to help each other. And that's why I think we're having a bigger effect than just boosting achievement or reducing the achievement gap. The kids that come out of our classrooms have a different... Social orientation. There's three possible social orientations. You can be against somebody, you can be with somebody, or you can be alone, independent. In the traditional, kids year after year practice working alone and they practice competing with one another who got the best grades, who gets called on, who doesn't. Kids are literally yapping for attention, trying to get the teacher's attention. They're in competition Mm -hmm. with one another. There's something missing in the diet. So what we do, we still have kids work alone sometimes. We still have kids compete with one another, but we're correcting the diet. It's a more balanced diet. They're also spending time cooperating. And it turns out that kids would rather work with each other than against each other or alone. And when all school year this year and next year and next year you're working a good part of the time with others, when you leave school, you see somebody in distress, it's not a secret smile, I'm better than they are, I beat them, or I got to go do my thing. It's not against or alone, it's how can I help you? Mm So as simple as these structures are, we're really with this creating a better world. Because every year we send out a whole new wave of kids into the world, and how they're going to interact out there 
is the social orientation they acquired in our classrooms. Well, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I feel I feel very honored that you were willing to. It's to been talk my pleasure. Me. Thank I'm you. Glad to share. you guys what an honor it was to be able to talk to him one-on-one and hear some of the background to his research and how he got started in cooperative learning and when he talked about his love for photography the spot in my heart for him grew even bigger dr kagan kind of reminds me of my dad a really smart man with this passion for photography which makes me also kind of wonder if he's as much of a perfectionist as my dad anyways i hope you have an idea of how you can take kagan cooperative learning back into your classroom and use it with your kids The times I use a Kagan structure versus the times I don't, there's such a difference in my kids' enthusiasm and their engagement. So I hope you found something that you can use tomorrow. And y'all don't forget to like the Simply Organized Teacher on Instagram so that way you can be a part of the giveaway I'm doing for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Simply Teach. Don't forget to head over to the simplyorganizedteacher.com for all the show notes, links to things we talked about, and you can sign up for my email list there. Also, be sure to find the Facebook group because I want to be your social media friend. The fun music you're listening to, that's provided by hooksounds.com. Thanks for listening to the Simply Teach podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Make sure you join back next week for a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review so other great teachers can find us. Thank you.